Well, let's find some inspiration this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses uh, 14 and 15. I've got those verses on your outlines uh, this morning, uh, and I've also got those verses on the screen behind me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is God's word. She's 51 years old and had been married for 20 years. And in that time, uh, they had buried their differences over finances and parenting and even matters of faith. And when the last of their three daughters had graduated from high school, those differences were all that they could see. And so they became married singles, married singles. They shared the same last name. They shared the same uh, checking account. They even shared the same roof. But their lives had drifted apart, married singles. And they had nothing to talk about. And when they did talk, all they did was fight. And eventually, their marriage ended. Now, this scenario is being played out in our country today like never before. Uh, while the overall divorce rate in the United States has declined, did you know that divorce for people ages 50 and over has doubled in the last 20 years? In 1990, one in 10 people age 50 and over split up. In the year 2009, the number was roughly one in four. Almost two-thirds of these are initiated by women, and cheating does not appear to be the driving force, as only 27% cited infidelity as one of their top three reasons. It's as if these marriages have simply run out of gas, and rather than hiking uh, to the gas station to get that gallon of fuel and then hike back to the car, more and more couples are just abandoning the car, abandoning their marriage and one another. And sometimes uh, these couples say, well, God wouldn't want me unhappy, and so therefore it's best we end this. And thus the title of today's message, I've Got a Friend, I've got a friend who thinks God wants me to end my marriage. And this is a very real issue in our culture today, in our country, and frankly, it's a very real issue in our congregation. For quite some time now, it feels as if in some of the marriages in our church family, there's been a level of disunity and frustration to the degree that the marriage itself has been threatened, and in some cases, the marriage has ended. And so I, I, I would like to talk about this today. And before I go any further, I want you to know that I know that we're all here. I know this. 
I know that some of us have already been through divorce. And I have no interest at all in uh, piling on. Those of you who know me know that I've talked about a divorce in my family of origin and the ache. And so I feel full of compassion and grace for those of you who have already been through divorce. Some of you are struggling because your spouse wants to end the marriage and you feel helpless and I want to give comfort and support. Some of you are here today and you either have been or are now in an abusive situation and divorce seems the only way out and so I want to you know, proceed with caution. I want to be careful and be patient. Some of us are here today and we're married and we're thinking and scheming about a way out. Fantasizing scenarios with other people that you think is going to fix whatever discontentment and unhappiness you feel like you have. And if you're in that situation, well, I guess I would just like to lovingly afflict you with some truth today. Some of you are here and uh, you're not married. And, you know, you're thinking about marriage. At least you were until about two minutes ago. <laughs> and, uh, and whether you would like to be married or whether you could care less whether you ever married, what I do think is important is to weed out... Uh, a false philosophy that is rampant in American culture. It seems that America has this paradigm about the purpose and meaning of marriage. And, and I guess what I'd like to do in our teaching time is to simply conduct a full-scale frontal assault on that paradigm with God's word and show that there's a better way. So, so church family, we're all here today. We're all here today. And I just want to, uh, I want to love us and I want to challenge us with this question. Here's the question. How does the gospel, how does the good news of Jesus Christ coming into this world to save sinners through his death, burial, and resurrection, how does this gospel give hope when I feel an irretrievable loss of hope in my marriage? How does the gospel give hope when I feel like I've been given a death sentence to the person I've married? Now, our scripture reading this morning was from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, verses which at first glance appear to have absolutely nothing to do with marriage. But on the contrary, these verses tell us both the problem and solution. What's the problem that's causing one or both spouses to abandon what they said they'd never abandon on their wedding day? These verses tell us. They're right there before our very eyes. And then what's the solution? How can a marriage that had once been on life support thrive and prosper how can you know i've got a friend who thinks god wants them to end their marriage become i've got a friend who thanks god for their healthy hopeful united christ-centered marriage 
The answer's right there in these verses before our very eyes. So let's consider both the problem and the solution. First, the problem. What is the problem? The problem is a problem of lost hope. Lost hope. Lost hope for a healthy marriage. Lost hope for a strong relationship. Lost hope for a spouse with whom to share a lifelong, satisfying uh, marital union. And in our culture, lost hope feels very real, especially in a in an unhappy, dysfunctional marriage when the children leave and you enter that new chapter of being an empty nest. You see, at least with the children at home, there was another dynamic at play, right? A dynamic which possibly provided a, either a buffer or a distraction from the ache of the hopelessness of this empty marriage. But now, with the kids gone, baby boomers... In unhappy marriages, often look at one another and think, I could live another three decades. Do I want to do it with this person? And in the year 2009, 600,000 couples said no. No. And why? Lost hope. Lost hope. Now, most marriage counselors agree that lost hope has these symptoms or signs. Uh, Conversations that end in bickering, arguments that end in bitterness, patterns of unaddressed dysfunctional behavior, lack of intimate communication or conversation, unforgiven hurts from the past that keep piling on higher and higher and higher. Uh, A stubbornness, on behalf of either or both spouses, each insisting that the other is the problem and each resisting a spirit of reconciliation. Symptoms of lost hope. And lost hope can also lead a spouse to fantasize a blissful marriage with someone else. We imagine a better marriage with a better spouse, a a story-bound partner who fulfills all of our wants and needs and, and makes us deliriously happy, a Stepford spouse whose three favorite words are, as you wish. But the fact is this, remarriage, remarriage after a divorce, doesn't improve the odds of marital longevity. In fact, it only increases the risk of failure. Uh, I found a fascinating and informative paper in preparation for our teaching time called The Gray Divorce Revolution. The Gray Divorce Revolution. It's authored by a Dr. Susan Brown, who's a sociologist at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Uh, Bowling Green State University uh, hosts the National Center for Family and Marriage Research. And Dr. Brown's paper on the rise of divorce among middle-aged Uh, included this quote. She says, the divorce rate is two and a half times higher for those in remarriages versus first marriages. So, you know, it's really a fallacy to think, well, you just get better the next time. No. Statistically, no. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. You can can look at this paper. you You can get it. And you can study the statistics. You can review the research. But almost without exception, 
someone with lost hope will conclude that they are the exception. They'll say things like, well, that that research may be true, but my situation's different. It's complicated, and it's really not. It's really not, and here's why. You see, lost hope stems from somewhere. Lost hope is caused by something, and of course, People in unhappy marriages want to assume that it's caused by the spouse. That's why. But Dr. Susan Brown would disagree. She found in her research that over the past 100 years, baby boomers have been tweaking the meaning and purpose of marriage, and in doing so, may have unwittingly caused their own hopelessness. She talks about how in our culture, marriage has um, transitioned through different phases, from institutional phase to companionate phase to individualized phase. She says uh, before World War II, there was this institutional phase where, where marriage was seen as what she calls an economic union, an economic union, and by that I gather uh, my grandparents uh, My grandfather, Louis Roscoe Phillips, Roscoe, love that name. And my grandmother, Lillian Violet Jones, Roscoe and Violet, grew up in Windyville, Missouri. Windyville was a gas station. The post office was there, southwestern Missouri. The Phillips Farm and the Jones Farm kind of were adjacent. And my grandfather... And my grandmother married in 1930. And, you know, they were God-fearing, Bible-believing, strong Baptists. And they, you know, they, they lived in a time where, where marriage in the United States, the, they felt that, you know, they had a better shot at the good life as a married couple rather than being single. And so, yes, while they have married for love, where the U.S. was at that time made it such that their, their marriage made it better for them economically. And therefore, as Brown concludes, marriage as an institution for uniting two economic partners pre-World War II. And then post-World War II, this institutional phase, Dr. Brown says, transition to what she calls a companionate phase, a companionate phase where marital success became a matter of how well husbands could be breadwinners and how well wives could serve as skilled homemakers and mothers. And perhaps a characterization of this might be in the 1950s sitcom Leave it to Beaver, Think June and Ward Cleaver, the companionate phase. And then came the 1970s, the me generation, where marriage in American culture entered what Dr. Brown calls an individualized phase with an emphasis on the satisfaction of personal needs. So marriage became more egocentric. Marriage occurred for the purpose of self-fulfillment. In other words, marriages in America began to operate, and I would argue still do, under what you could call a personal happiness paradigm. A personal happiness paradigm. A paradigm of self-fulfillment, a paradigm of personal satisfaction, a paradigm based on one's subjective sense of well-being. It's really where we are today. 
in our culture. Well, you can see where that perspective leads, can't you? If the ultimate purpose of of marriage is my self-fulfillment, if if marriage's chief end is the satisfaction of my personal needs and and my wants and my desires and my joy and my well-being, then it's pretty much doomed from the start, isn't it? And why? Because there are two people standing there at the altar, that's why. And I don't have to tell you that life after the honeymoon is radically different from the honeymoon that preceded it. This person that I love to play with and frolic with, now I have to live with and work with. In college, Sarah Engel and I frolicked about on a beautiful fall day like this at Miami Whitewater Forest, and we rolled in the grass and saw the beautiful leaves turning. She was once my escape from responsibility. In marriage, she became my primary responsibility. And spending time together is radically different from living together. And reasons for attraction now become reasons for irritation. And you know, she just, she was so transfixed when we were dating with this very handsome, very humble Randy (laughs) Boltinghausen. And then we got married and now she's got to put up with a thousand different idiosyncrasies, none of which need to be mentioned at this point. (laughs) And at that very moment, when the brutal facts of my current reality become painfully clear, the question then becomes, what kind of love will control me? What kind of love will control? Will I be controlled by the love of Christ? Verse 14, Will I be led by the love of Christ and will I lead with the love of Christ and shepherd with the love of Christ? Or am I going to live for myself? Verse 15. And the personal happiness paradigm simply rewrites the Bible so that it says, for the love of self controls me. And if the love of self controls me, then, well, of course I'm going to live for myself because that's what people who are controlled by the love of self do. They live for themselves. And isn't that what sin is? Isn't sin the act of living for yourself? Demanding my agenda, demanding my way, insisting on my plan, and simply just bulldozing over my spouse till I get it? In his very insightful book, The Masculine Mandate, Richard Phillips writes, I used to think that if a man came into my house to attack my wife, I would certainly stand up to him. But then I came to realize that the man who enters my house and assaults my wife every day is me. Through my anger, my harsh words, my complaints, and my indifference, as a Christian, I came to realize that the man I need to kill in order to protect my wife is myself as a sinner. And I would suggest that if a marriage has lost hope, it's likely that one or both spouses are living for themselves. Could that be true in your case? Is it possible? Is it possible that you've made the goal and purpose and destination of your marriage you? 
Is it possible that you're living for yourself? Is it possible that you want your spouse to love you as much as you love you? God never designed the aim or goal or objective of your marriage to be about your personal happiness in your personal empire. He never made marriage for that purpose. And I'm not saying that God hates happiness. I'm not saying... God, listen, church family, God is the happiest person in the universe. He is pure joy. I'm saying that when I make my subjective well-being the goal by which I measure marital success, it's unsustainable. It's not that God hates happiness. It's that happiness is just too small of a goal. There's a bigger goal. There's a larger objective here. There's a better vista to view. There is. Well, what is it? Well, that's the solution. So the problem is the personal happiness paradigm. The solution, the solution is personal holiness based on the love of Christ. God wants to change me as I live for him in a marriage controlled by his love. For the love of Christ controls me, Paul says. So your marriage is not a prison. And it's not a death sentence except to your own self-centeredness. And it is, it is God's grace and mercy and love that he uses marriage to point out to me regularly how self-centered I am. And how strong my addiction to my personal happiness is. And so disgruntled spouses will say, well, well you know, my spouse brings out the worst in me. Well, yeah, that's what marriage does. Rooting out the worst so that I will become a holy man of God. Yeah. Disgruntled spouses say, well, you know, my spouse makes me so angry. No, no, you were already angry. <laughs> your marriage just revealed just how out of control you really were. See? And the sooner I stop blaming and the sooner I come face to face with the ugliness of my depraved self-centeredness, then the sooner I will become grateful for one of God's best overlooked marital gifts. And it is the gift of spousal resistance. That's right, spousal resistance. And by that, I do not mean red-faced, toxic defiance. I don't mean that. I mean this. My spouse is a real person who will not conform to the image I have of her. C.S. Lewis was married to a woman named Joy Gresham who died. And he grieved her death. He commented, he said, you know, I don't have a good photograph of joy. And that did not bother him. Not at all. In fact, he said that one of the hardest parts of his grief was that the more time passed, he could recall only the good while forgetting only the bad. And he said what remained was this edited memory of someone he used to be married to, but who never really existed. 
And that's kind of sad when you think about it. What we do to spouses after they die. Well, it's even worse when we do that with spouses when they're alive. You know, we want a revised edition of our spouse, an updated version. And why not? We update our computers. We update our tablets. We update our smartphones. We get updated uh, software information. Why not update our spouses? What could be better than Sarah 2.0? Or Sarah 7.0? Or, you know, it's been 28 years, Sarah 28.0. I mean, that's beautiful. No. No, that's fantasy. You see, God has not called me to love my virtual spouse. He's called me to love my actual spouse. He's called me to love the original, not the preferred. You see, after all, I'm, a, I'm an original too. And if I'm loving only what's pleasing to me about my wife... I don't need Jesus for that. What I need is liberation from my addiction to constantly adjust her to my liking. That's what I need. And how wonderful that God uses the grace of marriage to free me from the chains of my flesh and put me into a path of deeper joy in a union controlled and compelled by the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. Not the love of my own personal wants, Not the love of my self-satisfaction, but the love and worship of Christ. And when his love controls me, then I end up living for him. For him. And what does that look like? What does it look like to live for him who for their sake died and was raised? Oh my. Well, living for him means that I'm willing to serve when it's the last thing I feel like doing. Living for him means being willing to listen to my spouse when my instinct is to argue living for him means resisting the urge to keep records of wrongs. Living for him means loving my spouse even when I don't feel my spouse deserves my love. Living for him means humbly asking for forgiveness when I'd rather just be right. And living for him means the willingness to go through a moment of tension to get truth on the table living for him one day at a time till death do us part. Um, About a month ago, I had the opportunity to, well, some of you have asked me, well, Randy, who's your pastor? And, uh, well, here's my pastor. Um, Roy Blackmore was the minister in my home church, East Tulsa Christian Church. And he's almost 90 years of age. He, uh, he baptized me. He uh, ordained me. He um, officiated at Sarah and mine's wedding. And so in my last trip to Tulsa, I just, the, the Spirit just um, prompted me, I think you need to go see Roy. So I went to worship with him at the church he attends and he doesn't drive anymore, so his grandson, um, who's about 30, you know, picks him up and takes him to church and sits with him. And you know, I sat with the two of them, and just to see their relationship was so sweet. And 
One part of the service, Roy just kind of squeezed his grandson's leg and his grandson squeezed Roy's leg. And I was able to go out and take them out for lunch afterwards and then um, Roy said this. It was kind of out of the blue. He said, he said you know, Randy, um, he said, I'm almost 90, so, and this is how he put it. He said, you know, in about 10 or 15 years, I'm going to need someone to do my funeral. <laughs> I said, you don't have to say anything else. I said, I, I know what you're saying. And what an honor that would be. Uh, Roy was married to his wife, Martha, for 68 years. She died earlier this year. Um, and they had courted for two years, and so they'd been in each other's lives for almost 70 years. And, and near the end, why, you know, he went to the hospital every day and went to the nursing home every day. And why? Because Roy was living for Christ. Living for him means you do that. And living for him means that if able, your, your spouse's caregiver at home Living for him means loving through the seasons and phases of change that inevitably occur in every marriage. Frustrated couples will look at their spouses and say, you know, you've changed. Well, duh, of course. People do. They do change. The act of marriage changes people. And and the day that my son Benjamin and our daughter-in-law Ablaza were married right here at this very spot, I looked at Ben and I said, at the time, I said, Ben, you must know this. In the past 27 years, your mother has been married to five different men. And they've all been me. They've all been me. Because we do change. The point isn't the change. The point is that in marriage, we make a covenant to the future and keep that one day at a time. The personal holiness paradigm. Loving one another with Christ's love. Church family, God is not interested at all in making personal happiness the focal point of your life in marriage. He's not. He's no interest in that at all. He wants us to be holy. He saved us so that we might become a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And he's made marriage so that a husband and a wife might be united and that in their united flesh, the world might see through their faces the face of Christ and his love. So marriage is not a place where we go to find love. Rather, marriage puts me in a one flesh relationship with someone to love. For the love of Christ controls me and when you hear us talking about the vision of this church being a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ that vision includes being a spiritual community of healthy marriages who then help heal other marriages and that's why I wish that you would consider taking the specific insight class that we're offering here this season called United, United. And it's led by a couple in our church who has a healthy marriage, Kevin and Katie Flint. Raise your hands, Kevin and Katie. And if you have questions about that course, please see them. We have 
we have spots open. And our elders will be up front. I'm going to be up front here if you would, if you would like prayer. Um, whether your marriage is struggling with hope or whether your marriage is brimming with hope, okay? I mean, I'd like to see both come up here. And your elders and your pastor would be privileged to pray with you because we want our marriages controlled by the love of Christ. We want marriages based and built on a level of love that can't be concocted on our own. Love that we can't make up or cook up. It's a love that's derived from the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. And we no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. Last year about this time, Gordon Yeager, 94 years of age, and his wife Norma, she was 90, they died exactly one hour apart after 72 years of marriage. And they were holding hands when they died. Um, They had left their home in Iowa to run some errands in town, but they never made it. Uh, They were in a car accident. They went to the emergency room with broken bones and other injuries, and uh, they were transferred to intensive care, and the nurses knew not to separate them. And even in the hospital, they were more concerned with the other you know, their son Dennis, Dennis Yeager said, you know, mom said her chest hurt and then she'd ask, well, what's going on with dad? And, and even laying there like that, she was more worried about dad. And then, and then dad would say the same thing. His back was hurting, but he'd want to know how mom was doing. And when it became clear that their conditions were not going to improve, the nurses moved them into a room together in beds side by side so that they could hold hands. And at 3.38 p.m., Gordon died holding hands with his wife as the family they had built surrounded them. And their son Dennis said, you know, it was really strange. They were holding hands and then dad stopped breathing, but I couldn't figure out what was going on because the heart monitor was still going, but we were like, well, he's not breathing. How does he still have a heartbeat? And the nurse checked and she said that's because they were holding hands and It was going through them. Her heart was beating through him and picking it up. And exactly one hour later at 4.38 p.m. after Gordon died, Norma passed away too. And Dennis Yeager said they just loved one another. They loved being together. They were old-fashioned. They believed in marriage till death do you part. And then Dennis also said, I don't think there was a big secret to their marriage. Sometimes they'd get so mad at each other. But they worked it out. And in the end, they chose each other. Love is a choice, it's a choice. So let the love of Christ control you. Heavenly Father, 